Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 200. Wow. 200 episodes about serial killers. When I started doing this podcast way back in the autumn of 2016, I did not in my wildest imagination believe that I would end up doing this many exposés about the darkest amongst us. Also, I had no idea what I was doing. Doing a podcast properly is pretty hard work. Not hard work, as in actual hard work, such as being a carpenter or a coal miner. But it requires me to show up and do lots and lots and lots of research, and lots and lots and lots of writing. Luckily, I enjoy doing both, especially about my favorite topic, serial murder. Finding the time to sit down and work on this show in addition to my day job as a controller is also quite challenging, especially with small kids. But I am blessed with a fantastic wife and with her at my back, and incredibly loyal dear listeners, anything is possible. The Shipman Saga is fascinating indeed, and rest assured that episode number six will be launched in a fortnight. But I could not let episode number 200 
of the Serial Killer Podcast not be a special episode. Join me as we take a break from Dr. Death and instead fix our gaze on a murderer whom I have had my sights on for a while. The choice of tonight's topic will be controversial. It is not unlikely that I will get comments about staying in my lane, and to strictly follow the rule of more than three kills with a significant cooling-off period in between. But I wanted this episode to be standalone, and I wanted it to stand out, to pop, to be something special. So, there, listener, prepare to visit your humble host's home country of Norway for some truly depraved and horrible violence. Tonight we take on none other than Scandinavia's most infamous killer of all time. I am, of course, talking about none other than Anders Bering Breivik, the Norwegian 22nd of July lone wolf terrorist and mass murderer. And this is the Serial Killer Podcast's story of who he was, what he did, and how. This is going to be a much longer episode than you are used to hearing on the Serial Killer Podcast, so enjoy. For this episode, it being the 200th Jubilee, I want to dedicate it to my loyal Patreones. Instead of reading the names alphabetically, here are my loyal members of TSK Producers Club, ranked by seniority. Lisbeth, Cassandra, Russell, Lisa, Cody, Kathy, James, Corbin, Kylie, Niao, Sabina, Val, Madeline, Craig, Emily, Missy, Jonathan, Lance, Susanna, the Duggletons, Jennifer, Lunavar, Dmac, Cheryl, and Richard. You are truly the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Twelve years ago, I was sitting in my car on a rather grey summer day on the 22nd of July. I had just finished some shopping at my local mall, simply called Tveita Mall, in Norwegian Tveita Sjöpesenter. Tveita is the name of the area where the mall is located, 
in Oslo. The car I drove at the time was a Mercedes 180 C-Class station wagon. It was blue and was a 2005 model, so about six years old at the time. Zweite is located on a hillside quite far above Oslo city center. When I think about that day, back in 2011, I distinctly remember looking out at the gorgeous view of the city this afternoon at 17.22 Central European Time, CET. In my mind's eye, I'm quite uncertain if I could actually see the large grey cloud emanating from the main government quarter in the middle of the city. I'm certain I did not hear the very large explosion that shook the entire city centre, simply because I was several kilometres away and inside of my vehicle. What I did hear was the radio, which until then had played some boring pop music, suddenly turning to a breaking news segment. The voice on the radio sounded calm, but somewhat distressed. A massive bomb had gone off right outside the main government building that housed the Prime Minister's office and the offices of his staff and various departments. The quarter is known in Norwegian as Regeringskvartalet. Directly translated, this means government block, or more fittingly, the government quarter. The buildings at the time consisted of several important buildings, and I'll list them for you now. The Prime Minister's Office Building, known simply as the Tall High-Rise Building, or H-Block. The Supreme Court Building, the Ministry of Finance Building, the Ministry of Education Building, known as the Y Building due to its shape, the Ministry of Healthcare and Welfare Building, known as the S Building, Muller Street No. 19, the building housing the Government Security and Service Department, Building R4, housing the Ministry of Industry and Trade, as well as the Ministry for Oil and Energy. Building R5, housing the Ministries of Culture, Transport, Agriculture, Local Government and Regional Affairs, as well as the Ministry of Diversity, Equality and Inclusion. Grubbe Street No. 1, housing the Ministry of Fisheries and Coastal Affairs. As I was sitting in my car, the news at first did not upset me much. The newsreader did not seem to know exactly what had happened. Perhaps it wasn't a bomb, but an explosion caused by a gas leak or something like that. It did not take long, however, for it to become crystal clear that it had indeed been a bomb. The immediate area surrounding Ground Zero looked, according to newsreaders, like a war zone and there were multiple casualties. The summer of 2011 was close to the 10-year anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks in New York. My mind quickly reasoned that it sounded like Norway now too had become a victim of radical Islamic terrorism. I was furious. Quickly, I drove from Tweita and back towards my apartment at Tyson somewhat closer to the inner city, but still on the outskirts. The drive usually took only five minutes, and before I had time to park, my phone began to ring. My parents wanted to know if I was okay. 
The friend of mine called frantically. She had been downtown as the bomb went off and had felt it in her bones. I quickly got inside and turned on my computer and launched the streaming service of the National Broadcasting Network here in Norway, NRK. As the stream was running in the background, I looked up newspapers online. Every single one was filled with the explosion and speculations as to what had happened. I then logged on to a discussion forum, and there, too, every single thread was dominated by what had occurred. Almost everyone seemed to think that this was the work of radical Islamists. I had my suspicions, too, but something felt a little bit off. As I was reading and watching the news coverage, I saw a very gripping phone video of a man walking through the rubble near Ground Zero, the air filled with smoke and dust. He was shouting if anyone could hear him and if anyone needed help. In the background one can hear screams of pain. Just as everyone thought things could not get worse, true horror and evil emerged. The Norwegian Labour Party has a youth organization known as the Labour Youth. In Norwegian, the organization's formal name is, in Norwegian, Arbeidernes Ungdomsfylking. But everyone just uses their acronym, AUF. Every summer they arrange a summer camp. Yes, a proper summer youth camp as you Americans are familiar with, from movies such as American Pie and so on. It's held annually, and back in 2011 things were no different, on the island of Utøya. The island is 120 acres and lies approximately 550 meters from the mainland. The island has various buildings, as well as areas for parking on the mainland at Utøy Key. The island lies on one of Norway's largest inland freshwater lakes, called Tyrifjorden. It was a very idyllic place, with some large open grass-covered areas and open woodland, mostly filled with large pine trees and some birch trees. As I was sitting in front of my computer, suddenly reports started emerging telling of weird reports of violence at Utea. Gunshots had been heard, and there was smoke. Then reporters, who had managed to fly by helicopter to the area, started telling of bodies floating in the water and continuing gunfire. A gunman, or gunmen, no one knew, was slaughtering the kids at the summer camp on Utea. A Swedish reporter had managed to board a small boat and film the shoreline of the island. The footage showed figures, some of them very small, laying still, either in the water or by the shoreline. There was blood. Now, dear listener, before I continue this tale of utter terror and horror, let us wind back the clock somewhat. As we know, the perpetrator of these attacks was Anders Bering Breivik, at the time age thirty-two. He is blonde, quite tall at 183 centimeters, and at the time of the attacks, very fit. Oslo was both his home and place of birth, and he is the son of Jens Breivik, born 1935, 
and Venke Bering Breivik, born 1947, dead in 2013. Anders Bering Breivik was born on the 13th of February 1979. At the age of six months, he moved with his parents and a six-year-old half-sister to London, where his father, who is a rather renowned economist, worked at the embassy in Great Britain. The parents divorced in 1980, when Anders was one and a half years old, and, as was very much custom and still often is, the mother took full custody of both children. The two children and the mother then moved back to Oslo. In a report of concern to Child Protection Services in 1983, the psychologist reported that, and here I quote, the boy was exposed to neglect and recommended that he be moved from the home. End quote. The father tried to get custody, but unfortunately the courts were back then very, very biased against fathers gaining custody of children. The view was that mothers, as a default, was better caretakers, no matter the circumstances. Jens is retired and has been living in France since the early summer of 2011. Throughout his son's upbringing, he has only had sporadic contact. Since 1995, when 15-year-old Anders B.B., as I'll refer to him going forward, the father had virtually no contact with his son at all. According to Jens, his son did not want to stay in regular touch with his father. The reason for this is not clear. Perhaps his mother did not wish her children to have contact with their father. Perhaps there is another reason. It is very difficult to ascertain. Growing up, Anders Bibi lived with his mother and half-sister on the western side of Oslo. At school, he was liked in the class, but he wasn't what one could describe as popular. Several of Anders B.B.'s classmates remember him practicing basketball and pumping iron at the gym. He was much more powerfully built than most of the other boys when they hit puberty, and he took a little care of people who were bullied or were not as well liked at secondary school. Anders B.B.'s circle of friends in secondary school also included young people with a foreign background. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Anders Bibi started joining other boys doing graffiti, especially on subway cars. The schools he attended was Smesta Primary School, Ries Secondary School, Hartwig Nissen High School, and finally Oslo Commercial High School. All of these schools are what is known as solidly West End, or posh, as my British listeners perhaps would say. There are reports that Anders Bibi was somewhat bullied growing up, but this must have been small time, and not regular, as there are few sources verifying this. Most sources describe his childhood and youth as pretty normal. He was a bit of a loner, very focused on his appearance, so much so that he turned to plastic surgery when he was barely twenty years old, and in peak physical condition. As he grew older, he became highly interested in business and making money. In the late 1990s, 
He started working for a telesales company and performed very well there. He also established the company Media Group Limited with a friend in the summer of 1999. The company focused on developing and selling outdoor advertising space in Oslo. Anders BB sold his shares in the company without a profit, but not with a loss either, in 2001. In the same year, he established a sole proprietorship, Citigroup, but this was foreclosed in 2004. In December 2002, Anders BB established the website diplomaservice.com, where he sold fake diplomas to third parties for a profit. This business was continued in the company E-Commerce Group Limited. In the period 2002 to 2006, he earned more than 3.6 million Norwegian kroner. That's about 535,000 US dollars in today's money from the sale of these diplomas. He was also involved in stock trading using the company's name. In 2005, the company is said to have traded shares in, among other things, the listed American company Suncom for 900,000 Norwegian kroners, which resulted in a loss of 500,000 kroners. On the 30th of July 2007, Anders BB also transferred a BMW car and 600,000 kroners to himself from the company. In the years 2007 to 2009, he sold shares for over 1.1 million Norwegian kroners, spread over 60 transactions. E-commerce group was compulsorily dissolved in 2008, and according to the estate report, the company broke Norwegian tax laws, the Companies Act, and several accounting laws. After he stopped producing fake certificates in 2006, Anders BB lived on saved funds and stock trading and, of course, pocket money from his mother. From 2006, he had no wage income and received no benefits from the public sector. As a young man, Anders BB soon became interested in politics, particularly right-wing politics. He was involved in the Progress Party Youth Organization from 1997 to 2007, and served as deputy chairman of the local youth party from January 2002 to October 2002, and board member in the same organization from October 2002 to November 2004. He is said to have parted with, and had contact with, several Central Progress Party youth members, both at his own home and at other party members' houses. Anders BB was perceived as someone with strong opinions on immigration, but certainly not as a potential terrorist and mass murderer. On the Youth Party's online forum, Anders BB expressed an intense desire for financial wealth, a phrase he often repeated was, and I quote, get rich or die trying, end quote. In 2007, he resigned from the Progress Party. After leaving, he criticized the party for being too liberal and for being part of the politically correct establishment. 
He laid out his criticisms of his former political party as follows in a post online. I quote, The problem with the Progress Party has gradually become that in their pursuit of meeting the multiculturalist demands and the suicidal ideals of humanism, they have in many ways thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Genuine opposition has been reduced to listening to the PR agency and making two to three tactical statements before every election to secure the core voters' approval. The vast majority of new faces in the party are today politically correct career politicians and not in any way idealists who are willing to take risks or work for idealistic goals. The funny thing is that even though they have thrown almost all principles on the rubbish heap and reduced the cultural struggle to reducing the asylum flow by a couple of thousand, they are still publicly branded, ridiculed, tormented, and isolated by the humanist Marxists. End quote. Anders Beebe held a membership in Oslo Pistol Club, which gave him the opportunity to legally acquire firearms. He had legal firearms licenses for three firearms, a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle, a Glock 34 pistol, and a Benelli Nova pump-action shotgun. He was also a member of the Freemasons, but was excluded with immediate effect from the Norwegian Freemasons order after his terrorist acts. Since leaving high school, Anders Bibi rented various apartments and lived on his own. Outwardly, he seemed like a fairly normal young man. Some would even perhaps say he was handsome. But one thing was always missing from his life. Girls. He was very interested in having a girlfriend, but never managed to find one. His mother, with whom he had a very dysfunctional relationship, encouraged him to find an Eastern European woman online. He sat down with his mother, and together they found a pretty blonde woman from Belarus. The woman answered right away, and after a bit of chatting, Anders Bibi travelled to Minsk in Belarus to visit the woman. She came to visit him in Norway. But things quickly turned sour when she got to Norway. Not even an online hooker wanted to be with Anders Bibi, and it caused him to go into a depression. In 2006, at the age of 27, he moved back home with his mother. Aside from politics and various schemes for making money, Anders Beebe's great interest in life as a young man was gaming. He is said to have been active and a so-called guild leader in the game World of Warcraft under the username Anders Nordic and Conservatism. Guilds consists of groups of 10 to 12 players, or more, who must work together to solve often demanding virtual missions. After he moved in with his mother again, he locked himself in his room and spent most of his waking hours there, gaming, and partaking in increasingly more and more extremist political dialogue. And here, 
I need to make a point, dear listener. Please do not in any way, shape or form take this episode as me commenting on politics. I am simply describing Anders Beebe's activities and interests before his gruesome deeds, the 22nd of July, 2011. When I say extremist political dialogue, I am not referring to regular right-wing talking points regarding immigration reform, integration, lower taxes, and so on. No, I am talking about dialogues Anders Bibi had regarding establishing a violent, non-democratic, fascist organization dedicated to mass forced emigration of all non-Western immigrants from Western Europe or straight-up genocide of those same people. From around spring of 2010, until the 2nd of May 2011, Anders Bibi sat in his room in his mother's house and played video games, World of Warcraft in particular. The only time he ventured outside was to work out or to get drunk out on the town at night. He purchased sexual services from several prostitutes sometime in early spring of 2011. In his manifesto, He explained that all this was him rewarding himself for what he thought would be a suicidal terrorist attack. He looked forward to being a martyr for his cause. If Anders Bibi had operated a decade later, people might very well have called him a bona fide incel. There are lots of anecdotal stories going around about girls having met Anders Bibi while out on the town at night. He frequented the typical West End type of places. Towards the end, he spent quite a bit of time at a bar near Sule Place, located very close to the Royal Castle. The bar's name is Palace Grill. Two Oslo women in their thirties met Anders Bibi in this bar in the late autumn or early winter of 2010. This was one of Anders Bibi's regular haunts and he treated the women to a drink. Then they, or rather he, had a long conversation slash monologue about the historical Knights Templar. The women has explained to the police that he came across as wanting to appear tough, and that he seemed very concerned with the conquests of the Knights Templar and the need for Western men to once again become knights. The women perceived Anders Bibi as quite intense, so intense that they pulled back a little. Among other things, he wanted to stand very close to the women while he spoke. He also started talking about killing people. At this point, the women backed off even more. Both women asked themselves the question of whether this weird and intense young man was ill, and took up the matter with him to find out if he was doing well with himself. When asked what he meant by this talk about killing, he affirmed what he had said, but then he flashed the women a nervous grin, and murmured that it was only a joke. Soon after, he left the bar. During this period, Anders Bibi was in full swing with both his 1500-page manifesto 
and the terrorist bomb that was to take eight lives on the 22nd of July. He had ordered a total of 3.8 litres of explosive fuel from an online shop in the Norwegian northwestern city of Ålesund, and in November of the same year, he ordered 200 grams of sulphur on eBay. During this period, he also ordered five packages totaling just over 150 kilograms of explosives from a company called Ketten in Poland. It was one of these shipments that was intercepted by the International Anti-Terrorist Cooperation Global Shield and reported to the Norwegian Safety Service, PST. Unfortunately, PST did not act on this information at all. He did not store all the various equipment and ingredients for bomb-making he ordered in this period at home with his mother. In his manifesto, which also functions as a diary, he wrote that he dug down his various bulk purchases in the woods to be picked up when he moved out. And so it was, that on the 6th of April, 2011, Anders Bibi visited the small farmstead called Volstua, at a place called Osta, near the rural town of Rena. The purpose of the visit was to ascertain if the farm was suitable for his quote-unquote project. To Anders Bibi it appeared perfect. The farm was isolated, and there was no one nearby to hassle him about what he was doing. The 2nd of May, 2011, he moved out of his mother's house and into the farm. He explained to her and his sister, who at the time was living in the USA, that he needed a place where he could write his book in quiet, without being disturbed. The quote-unquote book he was referring to was no book at all but his terrorist manifesto. On the 13th of June, he performed a test detonation of the type of bomb he intended to use. According to his manifesto-slash-diary, the test was a massive success. His incel mindset was quite clear at this time, and eerily reminiscent of the so-called incel king Elliot Roger. The latter incidentally also wrote a rambling manifesto, although Roger's big idea was a bit different than Anders Beebe's vision of the world. I quote, In an ideal world, sex would not exist where men will grow up healthily without having to worry about such a barbaric act. Women themselves need to be abolished and all women must be quarantined like the plague they are, so that they can be used in a manner that actually benefits a civilized society. Quote. Anders B. B. wrote about himself in his manifesto slash diary the following very insolesque statement, and I quote There was a relatively hot girl at the restaurant today who checked me out. Refined individuals like myself are a rare commodity here, so I notice I get a lot of attention in both Elverum and Rena. It's because of the way I dress, 
and look. It is mostly unrefined and uncultivated people who live here. I mostly wear the best clothes from my past life, which consist of very expensive designer clothes, Lacoste jumpers, PKs, etc. People can tell from a kilometer away that I'm not from here. End quote. Anders Beebe stayed a total of 82 days at a small farmstead Volstua. I know there has been a lot of controversy regarding whether Anders Beebe was a Christian or not. I find this controversy rather odd, as he explains rather clearly what he is in his manifesto diary. On Sunday, the 7th of June, just a month before his act of terror, Anders Beebe wrote the following. I quote, I prayed for the first time in a very long time today. I explained to God that unless he wanted the Marxist-Islamic alliance and the certain Islamic takeover of Europe to completely annihilate European Christendom within the next hundred years, he must ensure that the warriors fighting for the preservation of European Christendom will prevail. He must ensure that I succeed with my mission and as such contribute to inspire thousands of other revolutionary conservatists, nationalists, anti-communists and anti-Islamists throughout the European world. End quote. In other words, yes, Anders Beebe considers himself to be a Christian. The last thing he wrote in his manifesto, a.k.a. diary, was the following, and I quote, Now it's all or nothing. I think this will be the last thing I write. It is now Friday, 22nd July, 1251. End quote. At 3.26 p.m., the bomb went off in Oslo. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give better help a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serialkiller. What follows is the official transcript of the police report from the officers who responded to the explosion at the government quarter. I quote, The reception area in H-Block was gone after the explosion. There were no signs of life there, but I heard shouts from up in the block. Outside the reception area there was a large hole in the ground, where the car bomb had been set off. There was a relatively heavy fire in R4 as well as a smaller fire up in H-Block. Also my employees who were wandering around in shock and who came up with incoherent information. Prioritized first aid. The first priority on the scene was life-saving first aid. Priority two was police roadblocks. Civilians were sent away. It must be added that many civilians did a good job of assisting in getting injured people down to Jungstorgen. A man in apparently police clothing was seen leaving the area two minutes before the explosion. He was carrying a pistol and helmet. End quote. The name Jungstorgen is a large plaza a couple of hundred meters away from ground zero. Anders Bibi had spent several weeks producing the bomb. It consisted of a stack of plastic bags filled with finely ground artificial fertilizer, ammonium nitrate, aluminum powder, and diesel. In the middle of the pile, Anders Bibi had placed a homemade detonator. It was connected to a fuse with a burning time of approximately seven minutes, which could be ignited from the cab of the large van he had hired for the purpose, a white Volkswagen Crafter. Eight people were killed in the terrorist attack, while ten people were hospitalized with serious or life-threatening injuries. Both the high-rise H-block and several surrounding buildings were completely damaged in the attack, but none of the buildings collapsed, which actually had been Anders Beebe's intention. Images of wounded people walking as if in a nightmare, dazed and disoriented, were showing live on all news networks and, of course, all over the Internet. I remember quite well being shocked at the amount of carnage that was shown publicly. There are several still photos from that event which have become iconic. One of them is the photo of Line Nashnes. In the photos of her, she has a stern look on her face and there is blood on her clothing. But the most striking thing is the huge chunk of wood that is sticking out on top of her head. A wooden part of the window frame in her office at H-Block had come loose and struck her below the air. It went straight through and came out on top of her head. Luckily, it did not penetrate her skull, sever any arteries or damage her hearing or eyes. Among other injured people, 
she was sent to the emergency care via a bus, as there were too many injured and traumatized people and not enough emergency vehicles available. While chaos reigned in the center of Oslo and a large-scale rescue operation was in full swing, Anders B.B. got out of Oslo unimpeded in a rented vehicle and headed for his next terror target, the AUF summer camp on Utøya in Hule municipality. He drove in a westbound direction out of Oslo, turned off at a place called Skeyen, and then followed small streets and side roads until he entered the highway road called E18. A little after four o'clock in the afternoon, he passed the town of Sandvika, where he followed the road E16 through the idyllic rural place called Solihøgda, and further northwest towards the large inland lake named Tyrifjord. He was heading straight for the island of Utøya to complete his terrorist agenda. As he was driving towards Utøya, Anders Bibi was listening to the news on the car radio. He could not believe how successful he had been and that he had managed to get out of the city. According to his own calculations, the chance of him being apprehended or killed immediately after the bomb in the city centre had been very high. His plans for Utøya had originally been a backup plan, in case the bomb did not go off. Since it did, he decided to complete both his primary and secondary objectives, and he was thrilled at hearing of the devastation he caused. As a side note, as Anders B.B. was perpetrating his terror, he was slightly intoxicated from the drug ephedrine. Simply explained, it's uh, amphetamine light. It's legal and usually used to treat asthma. As he was driving with murder in mind, the people on the island of Utea was in a festive mood, even though the weather had been somewhat grey. 564 people were on the island. Former Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland, Norway's first female Prime Minister, had created enthusiasm at 11 o'clock with her lecture on experiences and reflections from a life in politics. The lecture would normally have been held outdoors, but the drizzling rain meant that the meeting took place in the main hall of the cafe house close to the main tent city at the center of the island. Brundtland left Utøya at about three o'clock in the afternoon. No extra security had been put in place in connection with Brundtland's visit, in the same way as when Foreign Minister, now Prime Minister, Jonas Garstøre visited the island the day before. Neither PST nor local police considered AUF's annual summer camp as a security challenge that required special measures on their part. Half an hour after Brundtland had left, the young people on Utea began to receive messages and phone calls about the explosion in the government quarter in Oslo. Many got together to share information and discuss what could have happened. Some were anxious, while others felt relieved to be at a safe distance from the terror in the capital. Eventually, the camp management convened an information meeting at 4 p.m. 
Anders BB arrived on the mainland shore east of Utea a little before half past five. He first parked in a driveway off the main road. Here he sat in the car for more than half an hour before he drove down the steep hill to Utea Pier, turned left and drove slowly towards a forest clearing 30 meters from the ferry berth and parked. He had installed blue lights on the dashboard of the civilian van. The pier area was not large. On the outskirts stood a couple of waste containers. On the seaside there was a small boat jetty and a quay for the ferry MS Turbjörn, an old military landing craft that AUF had acquired in 1997 for 250,000 kroner, roughly 25,000 US dollars. On the middle of the jetty stood an open tent, which was used for registering travellers to and from the island. The young people, who were in the tent that day, took part in the summer camp themselves. One of the AUF guards went over and greeted the new arrival in the van. The driver stated that he came from the Police Security Service, PST, to carry out a routine security check on the island after the bomb explosion in Oslo. He was wearing a fake police uniform, dark trousers with attached reflective strips, a vest and a wetsuit-like shirt with a plastic police badge on the shoulders. Around his neck he had a fake service certificate, which he showed the guard when asked. The AUF was surprised that a uniformed and armed policeman came driving in a civilian car, but settled on the fact that it was probably connected to the fact that all available police cars in Oslo took part in the action after the explosion in the government quarter. Back in the tent, the guard called the camp management over the internal radio and informed them that a policeman wanted to go over to the island. He repeated the errand the policeman had stated he was coming on, and added that the police in Oslo should have notified them about the visit. A little before five o'clock, M.S. Turbjörn sailed from Utøya towards mainland. On board were the general manager of AUF's activities on Utea, Monika Bösei, the skipper of MS Turbjörn, and a sailor. It was only 625 meters to land, and the trip took only 7 to 8 minutes. Over on the land side, Bösei and the skipper, who were uh, romantically involved, went over to Anders B.B., after a short exchange of words, he began to carry some of the equipment he had brought with him from the car to the ferry. First, a heavy plastic box that he had to get help to lift on board. Second, a semi-automatic rifle equipped with a scope and bayonet. This was his aforementioned Ruger Mini 14 rifle. In addition, he carried an easily visible semi-automatic pistol a Glock 17, in a holster on his thigh. Unbeknownst to the AUF personnel on the ferry with him, he had carved using Norse runes the name Mjölnir on the Glock and Gungnir on the rifle's closing piece. Mjölnir was, as some of my dear listeners might know, the famous hammer 
used by the Norse god Thor. Gungnir was the Norse god Odin's spear. Anders Bibi had acquired both the pistol and the rifle legally from Norwegian arms dealers. The same applied to the ammunition, more than 1,400 rounds, which were hidden in the plastic box. The ammunition was hunting ammunition, so-called dum-dum rounds, that expand upon impact, causing massive internal injuries. At Bursai's request, Anders B.B. agreed to pack the rifle in a pair of black garbage bags. She did not want, she said, the police visit to frighten the young people. On board the ferry, the perpetrator put white earplugs in his ears. In his manifesto, he wrote that he intended to listen to the song Lux Eterna during his attack, a song made famous in the film Requiem for a Dream. However, when questioned by police, he made it clear that he had not listened to music as he was massacring people. He had sharp steel spikes on his boots, to be used if anyone tried to ambush him physically, and was carrying a small backpack. A thin drinking tube stuck out of the bag, which he kept bringing up to his mouth. None of those who met him in connection with the crossing seemed to have reacted to the perpetrator's clothing, equipment, or demeanor. M.S. Turbjörn left mainland at about ten minutes past five. Anders B.B. stayed on the front deck. There were also some young people on board who were going back to the summer camp after a trip to shore. According to several of the witnesses from the quay and the ferry, including the skipper, the perpetrator stated that more police officers would come. Once on the island, the skipper offered to pick up a van and drive the heavy plastic box up to the main house, which Anders Bibi happily accepted. At 17.17, Anders Bibi and the others went ashore, where they were met by Trun Banschen, an employee of the police, but for the occasion a hired watchman on Utøya. After greeting him, Bursai and Anders Bibi headed back up the hill to the white-painted main house. At the same time, the skipper drove the ammunition box up to the back of the house. The area back of the house would become Anders Bibi's base of operation for his attacks. As the skipper rounded the corner of the house to join the others, the first shots fell. The skipper's body instantly understood the danger. He ran up the hill and thought, and I quote, Now I'm going to get a bullet in the back, end quote. He ran into the forest. He thought about his daughter, who was on the island. Run like hell, he shouted to young people he met. In questioning after the attack, he said that he barely remembers this. But several people heard him scream to run for their lives. The skipper ran through the forest and suddenly stood at Tent City. He called 113, the emergency number. He did not know where he was going. He was only thinking about his daughter. At one point he received a text message from her. She was safe, it read. She had hid on a ledge. Then someone called 
and asked him to come to the ferry immediately. He ran back to the pier. A group of people were standing there waiting for him. The skipper had just seen his partner in life, Monica Bursai, get shot. He did not know where his daughter was. He did not know what to do. In total, there were nine people at the ferry quay, including the leader of AUF. The skipper was told to drive the ferry offshore, away from the island, and he did. His daughter would turn out to be one of the lucky ones who managed to hide and avoid being shot by Anders B.B. Monika Bursai and Trond Bernsen were shot at close range, from behind, and killed with several shots. A massacre that would eventually claim 69 human lives was underway. In addition, a further 33 people suffered life-threatening or serious physical damage, and several hundred young people were exposed to psychological strain that is almost impossible for others to imagine. The police estimate that the first shots were fired at approximately 17.21 in the afternoon. After the murders of Bursai and Banshan on the lawn in front of the main building, Anders B.B. continued up the hill. Along the way, he shot and killed one person near the dirt road. Other people who were nearby fled towards the cafe building. When Anders B.B. came up to the main cafe building at approximately 17.23, he shot and killed three people on the gravel square in front of the main entrance. Several people in the square and inside the dining hall witnessed the murders. Panic broke out among the young people in the building. That time he did not enter the cafe building, but continued along the path down towards the tent city. He fired at the nearest tents. At the south wall of the cafe building he shot and killed two people. There were many witnesses to these murders, both from the tent site and the cafe building. The young people in the tent city ran at the same time that Anders B.B. began firing a series of shots at them. Several people were hit, and two of these later died from their injuries. Almost everyone who was in the vicinity of the cafe building fled in terror. Many found hiding places along the water's edge all around the island. After his first massacre in the tent city, he entered the cafe building. The time was roughly 1726. There was still a large number of people inside the building, and chaos ensued as the majority tried to get out at the same time. Several jumped out of the windows in the rooms along the west wall and sustained fall injuries. Others inside the building were paralyzed by fear. As you might know, all humans have fight-or-flight instincts. Basically, people react in three ways when confronted with immediate danger. They fight, they flee, or they freeze. In later testimony, Anders B.B. described how he thought it was really odd how several of the kids in the building simply stood still, watching him, as he started shooting people. Inside the building, he killed thirteen and injured eight people. 
at 17.29, Anders BB went out again and moved down across the tent city towards a dirt path known as Lover's Lane. Anders BB arrived at this wooden path at approximately 17.31. He came over a small hill and discovered a group of young people hiding along the path. He shot and killed ten of these while they were lying close to each other. In addition, one person who was among the ten was hit but survived. Anders BB continued to shoot at people who were on the slope down towards the water and at the water's edge. A further five people were killed in this area and nine were shot and injured before Anders BB moved on at approximately 1737. He walked along Lover's Lane towards the southernmost point of the island. From the headland there, at approximately 1740, he shot at people swimming away from the island. None of them were hit, but one person drowned. Afterwards, Anders B.B. went towards the school building. On the way there, he shot and killed two people in the forest. When he arrived at the school building at approximately 1744, he shot two shots through the door. He did not enter the building. After firing the two shots, he continued towards the main house and the main quay. He arrived at the main building shortly after a group of young people had rowed out from the shore with the boat MS Rajulf. He went down to the pier and fired at them. The boat was hit by several shots, but no one on board the boat was injured. Before or immediately after the shots at the boat, Anders BB released a smoke grenade before he went back to the cafe building again. In the cafe building, Anders BB took a mobile phone with him, which he then used to call the police's emergency number. At 17.59, the operations centre for the county police district received a short and confusing phone call from a hidden number. The caller introduced himself as, and I quote, Commander Anders Bering Breivik in the Norwegian anti-communist resistance movement. End quote. He stated that he was on Utea and wanted to surrender. Neither he nor the operator had much more to say before the call was cut off. Anders Bibi's first conversation with the police took place while he was walking through the forest from the cafe building down to some rocks near the water. Shortly after the conversation was broken off, he resumed the massacre by killing three young people near the rocks and five in a small cove called Bolshevika. A play on the word Bolshevik and the Norwegian name for cove, Vik. From Bolshevika, Anders B.B. went to a small pump house. In this area, many young people had been hiding for a long time, and they were surprised when Anders B.B. appeared. He approached some of them, said he was from the police, and asked if they had seen the perpetrator or heard where the shots came from. He added that there was a boat en route to pick them up, and that they could keep calm where they were. Shortly afterwards, at approximately 18.13, he 
he started shooting at the young people. The shooting continued for several minutes. Anders Bibi shot and killed a total of 14 young people at the pump house. In addition, he shot and injured three. Then he went southwest from the pump house, on or along Lover's Lane. He stopped on a hill at the western tip of Utea, where he shot and injured two people. He also fired outwards at people and boats in the water, but did not hit any one of those. One person died at the western edge of the island as a result of falling from the mountainside. The fall occurred earlier in the course of events while the victim was on the run from the shooting on Lover's Lane. After the shots at the western tip of the island, Anders Bibi was in telephone contact with the police for the second and last time before his arrest. The conversation took place at 18.24, while he was on his way to the southern tip along the path. Again, he introduced himself with his full name and claimed to be a commander in the Norwegian resistance movement against the Islamization of Europe and Norway. He added that he had carried out, and here I quote, an operation on behalf of the Knights Templar, and it was acceptable to surrender to Delta at this time. End quote. Delta is the name of the police task force in Norway who participates in the most violent incidents. This time, too, the conversation was interrupted without the operator being given the opportunity to call back. Anders Bibi arrived at the south tip of the island for the last time at approximately 1820. Again, he surprised many who had been hiding at the water's edge. He shot and killed eleven people. Afterwards, Anders Bibi went up into the forest. In total, Anders Bibi murdered 69 people on Uta Island. The two youngest people he killed, one boy and one girl, was just 14 years old. In total, 32 people murdered were under the age of 18. Here is the total list of those killed at Utea by age. 14 years old, 2. 15 years old, 7. 16 years old, 7. 17 years old, 17. 18 years old, 17. 19 years old, 5. 20 years old, 1. 21 years old, 3. 23 years old, 2, 25 years old, 1, 27 years old, 1, 28 years old, 1, 30 years old, 1, 43 years old, 2, 45 years old, 1, 51 years old, 1. At 1827, Anders Bibi was arrested by police from the local police district and from the emergency squad on Utea, after he voluntarily laid down his weapons and surrendered immediately when he was called by the police. During the arrest, he is said to have communicated with the arresting officers, 
saying that another terrorist cell had detonated the bomb in the government quarter and that a third cell was going to create what he described as hell on earth. After his arrest, people were concerned that Anders B.B. was telling the truth about this, but it soon became apparent that there had only been one terrorist acting alone. Anders B.B.'s fantasies about a large order of Templar knights, the so-called Knights Templar, in Norway was just that, pure fantasy. He was held on Utøya Island for ten hours after his arrest. The police started the talks with Anders B.B. in a room in the main White House at eight o'clock on the 22nd of July. He confessed during questioning to what he called, and I quote, cruel but necessary acts, end quote. But he pleaded not guilty to having committed any crime. After his arrest, a media storm unlike anything seen in Norway erupted and lasted for over a year. Every single day, every single newspaper or media outlet had Anders B.B. and the 22nd of July as their cover story. The terrorist was kept in jail until his trial. Norway does not have the American bond system where one can pay a court-appointed sum and stay out of jail until sentencing. Note, not all those accused of crimes are kept in jail until their sentencing. This only applies to those who are kept in custody due to them being judged a flight risk, an immediate danger to society, or there being a chance evidence might be compromised. Forensic psychiatrists Sinne Sörheim and Torgeir Husby were appointed by the Oslo District Court as mental health experts. Their 243-page report was handed over to the court on the 29th of November 2011. It diagnosed Anders B.B. with paranoid schizophrenia and claimed that Anders B.B. was psychotic at the time of the crime and at the time of observation and thus criminally insane. The experts had 12 conversations with the terrorist for a total of 35 hours. The experts wrote in the report that his speech was incoherent, that he was a danger to others and to himself, that he had a lifelong disorder that required long-term treatment with medication, and that it will be difficult to treat him. They pointed out that he lacked empathy and had a traumatic childhood with mental illness in the family. In the Global Assessment of Functioning scale, Anders B.B. received a grade of 23 in function level and 2 in symptom level. In healthy people, the numbers are 100. The experts further wrote that he may have serious personality disorders, plural, but they would not make a diagnosis for that until he had been better treated for schizophrenia. The investigation was assessed by the Forensic Medicine Commission and approved on the 22nd of December 2011. Seven of the Commission's nine members assessed the report. Now this, dear listener, 
is some of the most controversial part of the case regarding Anders BB. Arguably, in any other criminal case, this report would have been used by the court to determine the accused to be unfit for criminal prosecution and to decree mandatory psychiatric treatment. However, the court overruled the expert report and appointed new experts to make a new assessment. These new experts, unsurprisingly, came to a completely different conclusion and determined that Anders Beebe did not suffer from schizophrenia and was very much sane and perfectly well knew the difference between right and wrong. Since this second report was made, several people have made the claim that this ruling was politically motivated. I am not, I repeat, not going to offer any personal opinions regarding this. I am just pointing out the facts. The indictment was issued on the 5th of March 2012 and served Anders Bibi on Wednesday, the 7th of March 2012. He was prosecuted under the terrorism section, section 147A of the Criminal Code, which carries a penalty of 21 years in prison. Attorney General Tour Axel Busch opened the possibility that Anders Bibi could be sentenced to indefinite detention. The maximum prison time a criminal can be sentenced to in Norway is 21 years. However, we have indefinite detention, which is a system in which particularly dangerous criminals are subject to review every five years after their original sentence has been completed. If they are found to still pose a danger to society, they can be kept in prison indefinitely with new reviews every five years. The trial began in room 250 of Oslo District Court on the 16th of April 2012 at 9. State Attorney Svein Holden held the authorities' introductory lecture with a thorough review of the acts for which Anders Bibi was charged. After being read the indictment, Anders B.B. replied at 10.27 that, and I quote, I acknowledge the actions, but I am not criminally guilty, and I invoke emergency justice. End quote. On Friday, the 24th of August, 2012, Anders Bering Breivik was found guilty of breaching the so-called terror clause current penal code of 1902, section 147a, and sentenced to indeterminate detention in prison. The sentence was 21 years in custody with a minimum term of 10 years. This is the absolute strictest sentence that anyone can be sentenced to in Norway. The verdict was unanimous and established that Anders Bibi was criminally sane when he killed 77 people on the 22nd of July that previous year. On the 18th of January 2022, that's last year, a trial started at Telemark District Court to decide whether the Attorney General's refusal of parole, which Anders Bibi was entitled to apply for after 10 years in prison, 
should be overturned or upheld. The trial ended on the 20th of January 2022, and on the 1st of February 2022, the judgment was handed down where the district court rejected the request for parole. Anders BB is incarcerated in Ringerike prison. Ringerike prison is located by Tyrifjorn, where Ute also is located. There is about 10 kilometers as the crow flies between the prison and the island where Anders BB killed 69 people in 2011. He has three cells, a living cell, a study cell, and a training cell. He can move freely between these. In the cells, Anders BB has access to a PC without internet, television, PlayStation 2, and exercise equipment. In addition, he has a daily offer of exercise in the airing yard, as well as airing in a larger area at the prison's disposal. He spends his days in total isolation and has no contact with the prison's general population. The only people he has human contact with are his lawyers and his guards. In his many appeals and letters of complaint to the courts, he describes his incarceration as a breach of his human rights as he experiences it as torture. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And with that, we come to the end of the Serial Killer Podcast's 200th episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next episode, we'll resume the saga of Dr. Death, Harold Fred Shipman. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my dear Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Jeg minner om at min norsk språklige podcast, Seriemordepodden, er tilgjengelig å lytte til både på Spotify, Apple Podcasts og alle andre steder du hører på podcast. Så som de sier i Radioland, følg med. <tryk>